This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 454. What's sad here is when you think about most management responsibilities, they are things that you do to people or that you can easily do to people if you're not careful. Things like setting expectations. If you set the expectations for someone, you're doing that to them. The way we traditionally think about feedback, accountability, and performance management prevents us from being the kind of human beings we want to be. Instead of mastering difficult conversations, We should instead try to eliminate them using what's called the disconnect principle. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and professional growth. I began this podcast nearly nine and a half years ago because I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, then intentional and consistent reading is a must. That's step one. Step two, putting what you read and learn into action. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. The Read to Lead podcast is not only going to help you narrow your reading list, but bring you key insights and main ideas from today's most successful and inspiring authors. And that person today is author Anne Latham. She's written a book called The Disconnect Principle, Eliminate Difficult Conversations with Clarity and Empathy. I'll be asking Anne to share how you can all but eliminate difficult conversations, what to do about the assumptions we so often make about other people, how the disconnect principle ensures you're doing with and not doing to in your relationships, and lots more. If you have difficulty effectively capturing your notes, knowing what to write and how much, and find they're often of little or no use to you later, or your notes are siloed inside various note capture apps and hard to call upon when you need them, or you gather other people's thoughts through the content you consume for learning and growth, uh, but they never seem to evolve into ideas all your own, You have numerous notebooks filled with handwritten notes that are difficult to organize with ideas among them that are impossible to connect, or you can't seem to ever get to creating with your notes and implementing on what you've learned. That very important second step I talked about just a moment ago. Well, you need note making mastery, if that's the case, more specifically, note making mastery live, the cohort, which is coming January 10th, 2023. We'll be meeting on the 10th, the 17th, the 24th, and the 31st. And you've got two options from which to choose as far as meeting times, 2 p.m. Eastern and 8 p.m. Eastern, each of those Tuesdays in January. Again, starting on the 10th, you will learn, among other things, how to better collect and capture your notes, what to write, how much, what tools to use and when, how to better connect and organize your notes so that you can easily and effectively and sometimes serendipitously find them later when it matters, how to better develop and distill your notes, to crystallize your notes so that your unique responses to the inputs, your own ideas and insights that are generated from the content you consume don't fall through the cracks, and how to better create from or out of your notes. After all, what's the point of consuming the content you consume in the first place if you never share what you've learned with the world, regardless of whether that's in public or maybe in conversation or at work. And that's just the start. Imagine it's February, just a few weeks after you've completed Note Making Mastery, the cohort. My goal for you at that time is that you'll have a library of notes at your fingertips that are infinitely more helpful and useful to you than all your previous year's worth of notes combined. You might even go so far, not everybody does this, but you might even go so far as to wipe the slate clean when you implement my personal knowledge management system. You may discover that all those things you've been collecting for years, you don't need. You're going to start from scratch. Again, that's not for everybody, but many of my students make that decision. That's how powerful the system is. Simply put, if you want to improve retention and comprehension of the content you consume for learning and growth, if you want to be the go-to person for ideas and insights when everybody else gets stuck, 
If you'd like to see the inputs resulting from your content consumption efforts lead to new connections, well-deserved promotions, and opportunities previously out of your reach, then your notes, your personal knowledge management system is the difference maker. The one thing that all else being equal will give you the edge and a crystal clear advantage. Alumni from Note Making Mastery, there's nearly 100 now, report things like experiencing increased efficiency with their time and being able to capture and organize ideas and notes the first time through, say, a book or other material, improved listening skills, leaps in their professional growth and development, more consistency in publishing content in whatever form that might take, enhanced reading comprehension and retention, becoming better conversationalists, or starting or completing their very own first book. I believe note-making mastery can help you be far more productive with your knowledge than you've ever been in the past. People say things like note-making mastery has busted me out of, quote, content overwhelm jail. That from Jody. I've learned to go from those rough handwritten notes to creating my own unique voice with that borrowed wisdom reflected in finished form. That from Dan. This journey has completely changed how I think about my notes. I was famous for taking tons of notes, but never doing anything with them. My notes now have so much more potential to benefit me and others with whom I share the information. That's from Kathy. If you're looking for an intentional, systematic approach that can be tailored to your individual learning style and personality, then this cohort is for you. That's Mark. And finally, this from Lisa, this far exceeded my expectations of how I imagined my notes could be used. I'm going to give you back $200 off your note-making mastery registration in a rebate. Go to jeffbrown.me. Registration's only open for a few more days. jeffbrown.me. Select note-making mastery live. Register. And then message me inside the Read to Lead community where note-making mastery resides. This hashtag, read to lead. That's it. The hashtag read to lead, and I will rebate, I will refund back to you $200 off your registration. Only available again for a few more days. Go to jeffbrown.me and be a part of Note Making Mastery Live January 2023, starting on the 10th, which by the way, is the day before my birthday. So celebrate with me. If you can't be there live, we make the recordings available to you within 24 hours after each session. JeffBrown.me, the place to go right now. Once you're in, message me the hashtag read to lead. We'll give you $200 back. JeffBrown.me. Anne Latham has been dubbed the queen of clarity by colleagues worldwide, such as Steve Robbins, co-designer of Harvard Business School's Foundations program. She's the author of the modern classic, The Power of Clarity, the number one Amazon bestseller, The Disconnect Principle, plus The Clarity Papers and Uncommon Meetings. She's also the founder of U.S.-based consulting firm Uncommon Clarity. Her clients represent over 40 industries and range from organizations like Boeing, Hitachi, and Medtronic to nonprofits like the Public Broadcasting Service, the United Way, and colleges and universities. Anne's advice has appeared in publications like the New York Times, Bloomberg, and Management Today. And she's also an expert blogger for Forbes.com. Her newest book, that number one Amazon bestseller, is the one we're talking about today. It's The Disconnect Principle. Eliminate difficult conversations with clarity and empathy. And thank you so much for being here. I'm excited to have you on the Read to Lead podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to our discussion. And I want to thank our mutual friend, Dan Horowitz, uh, over at LinkedIn, who uh, introduced us. So, Dan, if you're listening, thank you for making this introduction. I am very glad that I read The uh, Disconnect Principle. Well, I want to begin with a story you share early on in the book, the circumstances you were in and when you 
you had this sort of epiphany that would eventually become this principle. Yeah, absolutely. So I was working with a client named Max, and he was, I, we were working on a big group thing, but he stopped me one day and said, I'm having trouble with this one employee. I need to give him feedback. I'm nervous about it. I'm, you know, I'm not sure. It hasn't gone well in the past. Can you help me out? So I taught him everything that I'd learned about giving feedback. Everything from focusing on observable behavior, uh, being very specific, focusing on the impact of that behavior, words to avoid, words to include, sandwiching the feedback between good and bad and, you know, other things like that finding a pro- you know, everything you can think of, private place, all this stuff. And so I taught him everything I'd ever learned. He went off feeling confident and, you know, ready to go. And when we debriefed later, it was clear that he was miserable. He had failed again. And it was talking to him and listening to what he said about what happened that really gave me the epiphany and made me realize what was missing from all the advice I'd ever read and heard. And what was missing is that in all of the advice you hear is what you should do, what you should say, what, you know, little tools and rules, but there was no advice about how to think. And what is missing there is how you are thinking when you walk into these discussions about performance. So Max walked in there ready to say and do, and he did say all the right things, but in his mind, the other person had screwed up. Max was pretty mad at him because this had happened before. So in his head are these negative thoughts, these judgmental thoughts, this blame. So despite Max's ability to try to follow the script, his body language, his impromptu words, his tone of voice, it all betrayed him. His careful script was worthless because the employee knew exactly what he was thinking and where he was going. And this happens all the time for all of us. What about the nuances of of the different kinds of, of feedback? You talk about, you know, positive, constructive, negative, those words we tend to throw around. How does how how does the disconnect principle essentially eliminate the need and for, for these descriptors? Right. So the disconnect principle says that when something doesn't go the way you expected, all you know for certain is that something didn't go the way you expected, right? You don't actually know what happened. You don't know. Something might have done been done just right, and you just didn't realize it. The loop wasn't closed. But there's all kinds of possibilities for what could have gone wrong so that things didn't meet your expectations. So when something doesn't happen the way you're expecting it to, your best response is, we have a disconnect. And I don't care whether you're dealing with your boss or an employee or a friend or a coworker. If you say, we have a disconnect, you're suggesting that, okay, the situation didn't shake out the way I expected. There's no blame in that. There's no judgment in that. It's, it's a way of taking the situation, well, focusing on the situation, not the person. So instead of having these negative feelings and thoughts about how someone else made a mistake, you're just saying, whoops. It didn't happen the way I expected. And it opens the floor for an objective conversation about what did happen. And you come together working, as you said, on the situation. It's not the person we need to fix. It's, it is the situation we need fix to fix. Fix the situation, not the person. Because as yeah. soon as you try to fix the person, 
you've gone, you're going down the wrong road. Yeah. <laughs> so you were asking about the way we think about feedback and there's negative feedback and positive mm-hmm. feedback. And of course, no one likes to talk about negative feedback, but it doesn't take a math major to know that the opposite of positive feedback is negative feedback. So we use words like constructive and corrective. And the problem there is that as soon as you even say you're going to give someone corrective feedback mm-hmm. or constructive feedback, there's judgment in there. You are correcting them. You are fixing them. You've decided that they are in the wrong. They messed up somehow. They made a mistake. And as soon as you do that, you're in the wrong mental space to be as respectful and open to understanding what really happened as you need to be. So when you say, whoops, it looks like we have a disconnect, you're not judging them. You're letting them come back and say, you know, wait, let me, let's talk about what really happened here. How can we, you know, the, the whole conversation is where are we? What did happen? How do we go forward from here? Or maybe how do we prevent a recurrence? I know that most listening right now are thinking what I'm thinking, and, and that is something along the lines of, gee, how many situations in the past do I wish I would have had this, this information at my fingertips? What I, how many times do I wish I would have followed what you're talking about versus what I actually did? I'm thinking of a couple of situations in my own past in particular. Uh, you were talking a moment ago about how we make assumptions about other people unconsciously oftentimes, uh, most times, that, that are destructive or false or both. Why are we so certain, Anne, about what we can't see in other people? I don't know, but we talk about people all the time about, you know, with words like lazy or unreliable or ambitious mm. or rude or careless. And all of those things are invisible. You can't see rude. You can see specific behaviors that you interpret as rude, but there's all kinds of other explanations for behaviors that might have nothing to do with rudeness. And you can't even see ambition. But for some reason, that's the way we talk about people all the time. But, you know, passionate, it can be positive or negative, passionate or ambitious or methodical. And, you know, these are generalizations about a person's personal attributes. And I figure, you know, we're wired to do this somehow because we do it all the time. And it's probably because back when, you know, before we were sitting around in offices working together, way back in our, our evolution, we had to make quick judgments about people to decide whether we could rely on them or not, whether we could trust them. But at this day and age, to make quick judgments that you can't trust someone, you can't rely on them, especially if it's an employee or a coworker, that's not productive. That's mm. not going to help you figure out how to work with them effectively. Mm. I have the the ebook version, the Kindle version of your book, so I can't flip to to this place in the book quickly. But as you were talking, you reminded me, and I'm not going to give it away. I'm not going to give the answer away. Uh, but you reminded me of that little quiz you give in this particular chapter about you know which one of these situations is something you can see. And I didn't get them all right. That's right. And I was really surprised and I had to really think through it. When you go through this and and you read the book, you're going to kick yourself (laughs) like I did for not getting them all right. But I'm really glad that you included that. That was very, very helpful. That's good. And you're not the only one who doesn't get... (laughs) Most people get them wrong. And a lot of times... Um, I won't necessarily use the same examples as, that are in the book, but when I work with groups of people and I ask them this question, is this, is this observable behavior? You would be amazed at the experienced, strong, smart leaders who will go, well, of course it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you go, Wait a minute, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. 
and it really opens your eyes to the to the kinds of things that we think are observable and they really aren't they really aren't yeah what what does it mean then to quote do with and not quote to do to and and what might be uh, some examples of each of those right okay that's a good question so I read this book 100 years ago. I didn't read the book. Actually, I read a little bit of this book way, way, way back when I was in college. And that counts. That counts. And well, I learned a lesson I've never forgotten. And that I can't say about most books. <laughs> so, and the lesson is when you try to do something to someone, you are likely to fail. Hmm. When you try to do something with someone, you are far more likely to succeed. And it makes sense to us, I think, automatically, because we don't like people doing things to us. We don't like people coercing us or manipulating us or even telling us what to do. (laughs) That doesn't feel good. But what's sad here is when you think about most management responsibilities, they are things that you do to people Mm -hmm. or that you can easily do to people if you're not careful. Things like setting expectations. If you Mm -hmm. set the expectations for someone, you're doing that to them. Giving advice, giving feedback. You're a lot of times doing it to someone. Teaching. Teaching is doing to someone unless they really want to learn what you have to say right now. Mm. I have a big brother who always used to try to teach me things. And I guarantee you, it was never the right topic or never the right minute or both. (laughs) He was doing to me. He was trying to fix me. He was trying to make me smarter. (laughs) Doesn't work well. It doesn't go over well. So there are only four things you can do that are really doing with other Mm. people. And it's good there's only four of them because there's a multitude of ways of doing to people. But if you want to do with someone, you listen, you ask questions, you answer questions, and you offer help. That's really it. And if you want to teach someone, or if you want to coach someone, or if you want to advise someone, the difference between doing to and doing with is often as simple as asking permission. Are you interested in learning how you could do that better? And if you don't get an enthusiastic yes, you're probably about to do it to them. <laughs> that, that is so simple, but yet so very, very powerful at the same time. I thank okay. you for that. And, and, and I have to admit, I have a couple of younger siblings, one of whom has a permanent scar on his nose. The other one suffered a broken arm as I tried to do things to them. Uh, when we were <laughs> younger, I'll say that much. <laughs> uh, a quote from the book says, Anne writes, imagine what it would be like if we could embrace the essential spirit of accountability and banish all the pressure, punishment, and power that poisons it. This is in chapter six. Uh, talk about how it usually, accountability manifests versus how, and it should be manifested. When I ask people this question, of course, they try to be nice at first. But when you get them talking a little bit, they come out and say, yeah, well, accountability is about holding someone's feet to the fire. <laughs> well, isn't that a pleasant image? You know? <laughs> it's, it's about being sure people do what they're supposed to do. It's about doing too. It's about coercion and manipulation and discipline and pressure. It's all the things we don't like done to us. And so I sort of redefine accountability. Accountability to me is about collectively establishing commitments and delivering on those commitments so that individuals can achieve more collectively than they can alone. And it's all about we're on the same team, you know, coming up with these commitments and delivering as a group 
so that we can accomplish more than we can alone. You're on the same team. You're partnering. You're helping each other succeed. So to me, holding people accountable is about accountability partnership, being an accountability partner. Partners do stuff with you. They don't do stuff to you. They support you. They ask questions. They answer questions. They make suggestions. They offer their help. They're on the same team and they're very much with you. And when someone's with you, you feel respected, you feel supported, and you're more enthusiastic, you're more energized. So to me, any manager who needs to hold someone accountable, I hate that phrase, (laughs) (laughs) needs to think about how can we partner for success because we either win together or we lose together. We're on the same team and holding someone's feet to the fire doesn't sound like being on the same team to me. I love how this uh, all this interconnects the various parts of the framework, uh, going back to what we were talking about earlier, do with versus do to. Um, unpack what you call the mother of, of, of all disconnects. Okay. So the disconnect principle is talking about how, you know, something happened that didn't meet my expectations. It's just, there's a disconnect there. And the ultimate disconnect is the disconnect between what the organization needs and what an employee is willing and able to do. And unfortunately, the way organizations think and work these days is very much about the organization, the employer. Uh, the manager being the one in control, the one with power, the one with the power to hire and fire, the one who's superior, uh, you know, even supervisors, the superiorness of this is uh, suggests a really imbalanced relationship. And I believe we need to think about employment more the way we think about going off and, and finding a supplier or or mm. a, someone to provide a service for us. You would look and say, you know, so what is what is your service? What do you have to offer? And the other person has the chance to say, this is what I'm good at. This is what I like to do. This is what I will do for you. It's a negotiation. It's it's a win-win deal between the employer and the employee. Mm. So you have to totally change the sense of that relationship if you're going to have a good relationship. So the ultimate disconnect, if you end up with a mismatch between what the organization needs and what the employee is willing and, and able to provide, that's a huge disconnect. And because we're hierarchical, it's usually the employer's fault. <laughs> but just as I say, you should fix the situation, not the person. The same thing is true if you have a mismatch in the position and the person. Mm-hmm. So it's, if they're not succeeding, it's not about their personal attributes. It's not about, the, it's not their fault. It's not that they're failing. You don't have to focus on the person and whether they're failing. You look at the the match. Are they a good fit for the position? If not, you've got to change something. And that might entail them going somewhere else, but it might mean you shift the position, you find different responsibilities. But you need to have a really strong fit between what that person wants to do, what that person is good at, and what you need so that you have a win-win outcome. Before working uh, for myself, my last employer was very good about this. You reminded me of a situation where I I was in radio in in the past, and I was at a place where I'd been on the air for 21 years. And and the question was posed to me, Jeff, if you had the choice of of continuing working on the air or transitioning and working behind the scenes and off the air, uh, which would you rather do? And before I answered it, just because this was the attitude I had about just employment in general is, well, the first thing I wouldn't do is make the mistake 
of thinking that's my choice to make. <laughs> that's that's usually your turn. And they said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, this person didn't. And I cited example after example after example of, well, this person didn't have that choice. And people I managed didn't have that choice. And and, and there was a, a change of thinking at the time. Yeah. And I was on the cusp of that. And so you know, I, I let my, my answer be known. And a year later, I got to make that transition from being on the air and getting up at three o'clock every morning and being tied to a studio for four hours five days a week, to being able to come in at 8.30 and and use more of my other talents that I hadn't been able to use as much then and continued for five more years in that role. And so, so I'm, a, I'm a big fan of that, of, that, of that mentality for sure. Right. It requires not just a change for the employers. It requires an change of mindset for employees because yeah. I used to be an employee. I know that I was looking for promotions. I was looking for shifts in responsibilities that all was about money, status, you know, career path. And it wasn't about what I really like to do. Mm. You know, what's, and I actually finally had a manager who in my performance review explained sort of options I could have going forward, but based from a position of what is it I really like to do? What is it that I'm really good at? Because, you know, in one case, you'd go this way. In one case, you'd go another direction. Mm. And I really, it was the first time anyone had ever sort of shifted my thinking to, you know, what do I really like to spend my time doing? Mm. And it's a really important concept because probably the one of the biggest mistakes companies make in when they promote people is promoting workers who are good, solid, um, successful workers into managers. And when you shift from getting things done and solving problems and whatever it is that that worker is really good at, when you become a manager, you're totally changing how they spend their time, how they measure their sense of satisfaction, the skills they need, the patience they need. I mean, it's, and so too often these, especially really strong technical people make miserable managers and they are miserable because <laughs> it's not a good fit for what they really like to do, what they're really good at, what they're passionate about. And what I learned through my experience that I shared a moment ago is, is it wasn't that I was done with being on the air. I learned something that a lot of former radio people have learned is that we just wanted to be able to time shift what we did. And so we got into podcasting. <laughs> we just didn't want it to be tied to that studio. You're talking the morning. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you consider, Anne, to be one of the coolest things about the disconnect principle, assuming you haven't shared that up to now. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are so many cool things about the disconnect principle. The fundamental coolness is that you stop focusing on the person and their failings or, you know, mm. the, the blame or, or their mistakes. And you switch your attention to the situation. You fix the situation instead of fixing the person. Right. And to do that, when you're focusing on the situation, you're in a better problem-solving mindset, and in, you're giving more respect to the other person. You're communicating more clearly. You're listening more clearly. You want to learn. You're honestly interested in learning. What did happen? What do we have to do next? How can we prevent a recurrence? And so that builds trust. It builds understanding. Improves the relationships, whereas you know normal feedback destroys relationships. Often, mm -hmm. um, it's um, it helps you find better pragmatic solutions to problems, and it also can be used by peers to resolve conflicts or disconnects between them. 
without having to escalate to someone else. So there's benefits for everybody to just say, whoops, I think we have a disconnect here. Mm. It also, it's easier to admit mistakes. So instead of saying, oh, man, I screwed up. If you say, whoa, I think we have a disconnect. This is what I thought I was supposed to do. And I either didn't do it, you know, or I think you thought something else, whatever it is. You're talking very objectively about the situation. So much easier to be respectful and fair and really get down to what's important. And that is, where are we? What do we need to do next? And how do we prevent a recurrence? Mm. We've covered a lot of ground, and before I move on, anything I didn't ask that you would wish I had asked about the about the book, about what you've got coming up? Well, we did talk about it already, but I would just say one thing is that if you ever question whether you are being fair, you are probably about to do something to someone mm. <laughs> because it's actually quite hard to be unfair when you're truly working with someone. The minute you consider fixing someone else, You've likely lost some of their respect, their your opportunity to help them, and a little piece of your own humanity. Mm. So embrace the disconnect principle and just say, oops, I think we have a disconnect. Well, I know uh, business books are not at the top of your list, but I do want to ask you what kind of books you are reading that are impacting your life and career. What, what genre is that? And maybe some specific books that you can cite for us. Yeah, I, I really, I really like novels. I like historical fiction. As to me, I learn as much about leadership and how to work with people by learning about people through those books as as I could from a business book. Mm. So that's what I like to read. It's more fun too. <laughs> so for some specific examples, I like I love Eric Larson's books. His book about called The Splendid and the Vile about Churchill is excellent. Um, I love Jody Pico's books, especially her more recent books like the um, A Spark of Light and. She does a great job of taking a situation and then talking about that situation or that event from multiple perspectives, not just two. It can be as many as five different perspectives. So she'll take a hot topic and talk about the people in there, but get their totally different perspectives. So you learn different perspectives. And then one of my favorite books that had a big impact in, on me was Rising Out of Hatred by Eli Slazlo. It's, mm. it's a book about Derek Black who was essentially the heir to the Ku Klux Klan. And he was raised in a believing in white supremacy and white nationalism. And he made the transition out of there and eventually Mm. renounced it. And how what he heard and what led him to that change was fascinating. Great suggestions, uh, great uh, books that uh, I think we all can can learn from. So thank you for expanding our horizons. We tend to get business book recommendations. So I appreciate the, the left turn there. I'm curious to know how uh, or what methods you use, if any, you want to share to manage your personal knowledge. Many of us uh, have ways of managing our to-dos, our tasks, our commitments, whether that's uh, a list, a planner, a particular app. What methods are you using, Anne, when it comes to to managing knowledge, the things you don't want to forget, the ideas and insights you want to make sure you do something with down the road? Yeah, well, I'm smiling because I wish I had a great answer for you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remember I started writing a newsletter back in 2004, 2005, and I used to get ideas and I would just put them on scraps of paper and I'd shove them in a folder. <laughs> Once that folder got this thick, you know, I, 
I would I would go through it periodically when I was writing my newsletter to get ideas. And I usually put like four articles in a newsletter. So I'd, I'd chew through some of them, but I get more ideas than I can possibly manage. I've written hundreds, over six, 700 articles and five books. And so sometimes I should just go back and read those and learn things. You know? <laughs> I'm not great at managing all that, that content, but um, I do say that Sometimes it just pays to throw the pile out because if it's good, it'll come back to you. I get my best ideas from working with my clients and seeing like with working with Max, you know, what didn't work for him and why didn't it work? No, I don't, I don't have a great system for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, uh, in your defense, you're doing something right, having written hundreds of articles and five books. So I, I will give you that for sure. <laughs> but, but something you, you hit on there, I think, is worth uh, and bears uh, digging into and repeating. Uh, I teach a cohort called Note Making Mastery, where we walk through pillars of getting through this and, and, and making more of your personal knowledge and managing it more effectively and organizing it better and that sort of thing. I, I find that uh, one of the things that often comes up is similar things to what you talked about with notes everywhere all over the place. And they learn this new system and their first issue is, what do I do with everything I've already got? Yeah. And for some of them, that is indeed the answer, is to wipe the slate clean. That's not for everybody. There are other methods we talk about in the cohort for handling that. But for some, that's what's needed. And you're right. Oftentimes, the best ideas do resurface down the road. Well, the book, again, is called The Disconnect Principle, Eliminate Difficult Conversations with Clarity and Empathy. Her name is Ann Latham. Ann, thank you so much for being here today. I really got a lot out of the book and got even more great ideas out of this conversation. So thank you for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. For more on those non nonfiction books that Ann talked about, you can find links to that and the other resources and links we shared at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 454 for episode 454. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 454. There you can also connect with Ann online if you'd like to do that. Remember, just a few more days to register for cohort number four of Note Making Mastery Live starting on January the 10th. Two times you can attend this go around, 2 p.m. and 8 p.m. Eastern, each Tuesday in January starting on the 10th. Get $200 back when you message me inside the Read to Lead community, the hashtag Read to Lead. Hashtag Read to Lead. Go to jeffbrown.me right now to sign up for Note Making Mastery Live. Next week, I'm back for the final episode of 2022, where I'll be sharing with you some of my favorite books I've read this year, and they are not books that have necessarily been included here on the podcast. In fact, I have found a lot of value in going back and reading books I've never read before, but that are seven, eight, maybe 10 years old. Books that are not the current books that everybody else is reading and talking about. I mean, that's, that's, that's well and good. These are books, again, out for a few years, but still worth your attention if you haven't found them, if you haven't read them yet. I'll have those for you next week. My favorite books of 2022, not necessarily from 2022, on the final episode of 2022 next week. Did you get all that? All right, good. That does it for this week. Hope to see you next time for our final episode of the year. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.